kära publik, the audience, welcome to this special edition of International Writers' Stage. My name is Ingemar Fast and I'm artistic director of literary events at Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. It's Monday, September the 30th, 2019, and on the west coast in Gothenburg, the annual literary extravaganza has closed its doors. And tonight's guest of honor was also one of the most renowned guests during those festivities. And when she so generously also agreed upon visiting Stockholm and gracing our stage, well, then I thought, let's, yes, let's offer her the opportunity to discover, to enter into this gem at the very center of the city and very far from the wonderful and slightly madding crowd at the book fair. This building in blue, Konserthuset, was inaugurated in 1926 and is considered to be an architectural masterpiece. And every year at the main concert hall downstairs, a certain prize is presented to a selection of distinguished people from all over the world. This atmospheric and beautiful chamber music hall, the Grünewald Hall, is named after the artist who decorated it, and believe it or not, he did so in six months. And when I stand here in front of you, surrounded by this contribution to art history, I can't but reflect upon the following. This is the fourth time that Siri Hustvedt is uh, gracing international writer stage. In March 2004, you met her for the very first time, and that was on the top floor of Kulturhuset, in a coffee shop setting. And when she reappeared in 2009 and 2010, no more coffee by the table. Then we're talking about La Grande Hoe, Schorlen. And it was filled to the very last seat, and latecomers were desperately banging on the door. And now, here we are. And next time, heaven knows. But what I do know, what I really do know, is that Memories of the Future is the latest novel to dive deep into, to cherish, to admire by this remarkable writer. And a writer who is constantly, both intellectually and emotionally, curious. And uh, in Swedish, the title is Minnen of Framtiden, published by Nostets. And I think she should stand up now, translated with such great beauty and skill by Dorothy Sporong. And you deserve an applause. So please raise. Yes. Okay, this evening you meet our guest of honor in conversation with artist, writer, journalist, Annika Nolin. So please welcome, from Brooklyn, accompanied by Ms. Nolin, the one and only, Siri Hastet. So I have to say thank you for that extravagant uh, introduction. 
Let's take a second to look into the ceiling. It's beautiful. Yeah. Can't really see from here, but it really is. Så välkomna till kulturhus eller konserthuset menar jag den här regniga sista september. Jag som sitter här heter Annika Norlin och jag har fått äran att vara er moderator under den här kvällen med Siri Hustvet. Siri, visste du så att du förstår lite svenska? Nej. Jag snakkar som jag säger lite barnsli, gammeldags bergensk. I'm much more articulate in English. <laughs> so I think we're going to continue the interview in English then. Yeah. So welcome to Stockholm. Thank you. And you have been here lots of times before, as we heard. I have been here more times even... What is it? Oh, yes. It's a beautiful city and I'm always very happy to be walking in its streets, I have to say. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no. Uh, Echoes of the empire. Huh? The reason that you can speak some Norwegian, if I'm correct, is that your parents are from Norway and you have also studied in Bergen, is that right? Only my mother okay. was born in Mandal and my father's grandparents were immigrants. Okay. So it's one American side with Norwegian roots and then an actual bona fide Norwegian mother who came after the Second World War. Okay. Yeah. Because before we start talking about your new book, I wanted to ask you just one question about this Norwegian part of you. Yes. Because you, in America, you originally come from Minnesota, which is a part of America where a lot of people with Scandinavian origin live. And I was wondering, what parts of you or what part of your original family can you identify as? Okay, that was the Scandinavian part of me speaking. Oh, I mean, this is actually very deep material. Huh? Norwegian was my first language as a child. Um, I grew up always with the sense that there was somewhere else. And I think all bilingual people uh, have an idea that something can be expressed in another way. Mm. In fact, the drama of the between, which is a philosophical obsession of mine, probably is rooted in uh, the very early sense of two cultures. Mm. Mm. I was also wondering, because there's somewhere in your, and we're gonna talk more about the book pretty soon, I just wanna, yeah. Uh, somewhere in the book you write something about your life in Minnesota. You write that your narrator in this part was brought up not to stand out in a crowd. She was taught to try to blend in. And for me that's basically jantelagen. Yeah, we had it på norsk også. Jantelagen. And I think this is, you know, this is a profound thing. I always thought it was Midwestern when I was growing up. Okay. And then when I got to Norway and, you know, I was a more or less conscious being. I was in Norway when I was four as well. But then when I was 12 and turned 13 for a year and people had talked about Jantelovin and then I understood it went all the way back to the old country. <laughs> but do you feel, still feel that that is a part of you today or have you gotten rid of it? I think I've gotten over it. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah, this is, I think, especially acute 
in girls. Um, I've been thinking about have childhood memories. You know, when a, a boy won a spelling contest, he could jump up and down and scream hooray. Yeah. And if a girl won a spelling contest, she had to pretend that she wasn't proud. Mm. That's a... That's a kind of false gendered uh, yeah. uh, So you get question. the feeling that Jantelagen yeah. was more applied in girls than in boys. Worse for girls. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I was thinking that in your book that's not an insignificant part of it because you're describing one of your narratives is moving from Minnesota to New York to start a life where she has to kind of like stand up for herself in, in another way. Yeah, well, so what, what, is, what are these things? I think, you know, these are the questions I ask myself all the time now. I think what we're talking about um, is something that was very well described, probably first by Simone de Beauvoir, and then later by the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, who I think borrowed from Simone de Beauvoir mm. without telling, <laughs> which happens, as we know. Uh, when he talks about habitus, which is uh, things in the culture that become so deeply part of your perceptions, your thoughts, your gestures, that you regard them as natural. Mm. Mm. And he also talks about something, a phrase I love, symbolic violence. Okay, so what's And that? symbolic violence is, he says, you know, both people have to participate in it. So it's someone in the culture in a position of authority, either class authority or masculine authority, uh, one kind of up, one upmanship or another, who then in ways that are also accepted by the victim, mm. right? Uh, meets out forms of, say, verbal punishment, condescension, uh, which is then, ex you know, again, it's as if it's normal. Once that form of violence, which is not like throwing someone, uh, you know, against the wall or, or beating someone up, once the parties become conscious of it, it's no longer symbolic violence for, mm. for Bourdieu. But it's an interesting concept to think about, and I think it enters into the book. Of course, Bourdieu is never mentioned, but mm. it was something I was thinking about. Yeah, and we're going to talk more about that later on. But first, I wanted to describe more about the book, just so that everyone in here who hasn't read it yet can uh, <laughs> understand what we're talking about. So it's, it's called Memories of the Future, of course, and it's, uh, it's a complex and I think very funny novel that has a lot of different layers. Sometimes I'm not even sure if it's a novel because there's so many different things happening. So I wanted to just you to, uh, to ask you to describe it in your own words. What would you say the book is about? <laughs> it's, it's about <clears throat> memory and the imagination. There are two narrators, an old one and a young one. Mm. And in a sense, the, the structure of the book is a form of dialogue between the old self and the young self. Uh, the old self, of course, has a perspective that the young self couldn't possibly have. Uh, and... 
I think the book is in some way after you reach the midpoint, which has an act of violence in it, mm. is a kind of rewriting or revision of that uh, trauma mm. through the imagination, right? So what is memory? Something has, that has fascinated me for a very long time. You know, memory is not uh, a record of the past. There's no original memory in the brain. We might like to think so, but that's not what we're pulling out. We're continually revising our memories as time goes on. Um, and they are revised or reconsolidated by emotion. And, you know, that, that interests me a lot. Uh, so I think of this book, it is a novel. Uh, it has an unusual structure, for sure, but it also is calling on novels of the past, mm -hmm. including Don Quixote. And if, for those of you who are Cervantes fans, Cervantes wrote the whole history of the novel before there even was a novel, right? He does everything. He plays endless numbers of games in that book. And then, uh, you know, it also refers to Tristram Shandy, one of the great 18th century comic novels, um, which includes drawings, as I included mm -hmm. in my book. Um, <clears throat> and also direct, this was very common in the 18th century, a direct address to the, to the reader. So, the, some of the games I'm playing have been played before. Mm. <laughs> I want to ask you if maybe you could read us a small part of it, just so we get the picture. Yeah, I said, I, well, there's the opening paragraph, and maybe there's a, a very late thing. So, in a way, the whole book I realized is in the opening paragraph. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny, but it's true. Um, Years ago, I left the wide, flat fields of rural Minnesota for the island of Manhattan to find the hero of my first novel. When I arrived in August of 1978, he was not a character so much as a rhythmic possibility an embryonic creature of my imagination, which I felt as a series of metrical beats that quickened and slowed with my steps as I navigated the streets of the city. I think I was hoping to discover myself in him, to prove that he and I were worthy of whatever story came our way. I wasn't looking for happiness or comfort in New York City. I was looking for adventure. And I knew the adventurer must suffer before he arrives home after countless trials on land and sea or is finally snuffed out by the gods. I didn't know then what I know now. As I wrote, I was also being written. The book had been started long before I left the plains. Multiple drafts of a mystery had already been inscribed in my brain. But that didn't mean I knew how it would turn out. 
my unformed hero and I were headed for a place that was a little more than a gleaming fiction, the future. Thank you. So. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you, what, what was it that stopped? What am I talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? No. Yeah, so of course, actually, I, you know, when I read that paragraph, I didn't know, in fact, you know, how the beats, if you will, the rhythms of this mm. book were going to work out. But I knew it was the rhythms of the book were very important, both in structure and in, in sound, the music of, of the book, and that that little paragraph is a kind of embryo of the book itself. Mm. And uh, so it's, it has the tone of a fable. Um, you know, the idea of the hero is introduced very early and, you know, snuffed out by the gods. That's referring, of course, to the Greeks. And um, so I wanted to set the tone of the book as a, a you know, somewhat comic, but at the same time, uh, tone where you know you're inside a, a, a work of literature. And then probably the most important sentence is that the narrator uh, didn't know then that she was being written. And so who's writing? Um, there's a lot about authorship in the book, uh, taking control of a narrative, if you will. Mm. And the fact that we, all of us, are, I think, written by the myths of our culture. Um, Habitus is, is part of that writing. What kind of myths of our culture are you? Oh, I think to? many, I mean, we were talking about it earlier, I think many myths about authority itself. Mm. Um, you know, who gets to tell the story? And you see this, you know, daily in politics, right? I mean, uh, what are the stories told? How are they told? Uh, narrative always leaves things out. That's the nature of storytelling, is that there are big holes and then you grasp many things together. Mm. This is, to give credit again, Paul Ricoeur, uh, I think probably the greatest theoretician of narrative. He says it's a grasping together mm. of... Uh, you know, yet you'll never believe what happened to me, right? This is a kind of storytelling. Yeah. Yesterday I was on the street and the story starts to go. But you're not telling everything you saw on the street. The story is a collapsing of events that bring meaning. And some of those meanings are uh, liberating and some of them are, are oppressive. Mm. What was this thought that started this novel off for you? Like, what was the <laughs> first? It was failing at writing another novel okay. <laughs> that I worked on for about a year. I mean, and I, I have to say, you know, I'm, I'm 64, so uh, this book, the narrator is exactly my age, so she refers to herself as 61. I believe she turned 62 over the course of the writing of this. And... So I was, I guess, 60. Oh, seems like youth itself, no? <laughs> so, <laughs> so four years ago, I started writing a novel about memory and time and a trauma. Mm -hmm. And 
I wrote about 200 pages. And you know, the sentences were good. It's, it, it stink. It was a terrible book. And I couldn't understand what was wrong with it. And I kept trying to fix it. You know, if you're moving things around from place to place, you're probably in deep trouble, by the <laughs> way. So I tried to fix it like that. That didn't work. And then I, um, I was kind of desperate. And I thought, well, what if the narrator of that failed book starts to hear somebody through the wall? I thought, maybe that would liven this dead thing up here. Mm. And, then I, and then I realized at some point, sort of, that, no, that's the book I want to write. I have a feeling, this is a, perhaps an optimistic view, that the, the, the failing at the earlier book might have helped me understand the structure and the motion and the movement of this book that then, you know, got some wind behind it. Um, it's, it's a lesson in, in, in writing, I think. I also had to think so hard mm. about the other book that I think it died under the weight of its own thought, if you want to know the truth. And this book, then, once I started it, it had a kind of organic uh, push to it. And... Uh, because of the, the, per, the neighbor talking, the new voice. You know, it, I think it's very difficult to analyze, yeah. as, as you know. Um, but somewhere I had somewhere to go. Uh, a book should never go sideways. Neither should an essay, by the way. No work, no written work should ever just get fatter in this direction. It's boring for the reader and it's boring for the writer. So you have to have somewhere to go into the future or wherever you're trying to get. Do you uh, otherwise feel like you have, uh, because I'm a songwriter, and yeah. for me, I always have like, I've figured out, I've made like six albums, and I've, it's always the same thing that happens when I make an album. First, I think, this is awesome, I'm a genius. <laughs> then, <laughs> then comes a part where I'm like, this is the worst thing anyone has ever I think this is actually what making art is. Yeah, so, it probably so, is. So when you, by the time you've, uh, you know, in the case of a, of a novel, you're doing the third page proofs. The thing is just, yeah. you just hate it. Mm. Uh, uh, so I think that's normal. Uh, you know, listen, I'm arrogant enough to, you know, when I sometimes am asked for one reason or another, sometimes the translation or whatever, to look back at my earlier work, it's, it's more as if a stranger has written it, and you can have a certain pride about it, because it's become foreign. Mm. Uh, but no, that process of becoming so intimate with every sentence or every line, every, in your case, um, the music, yeah. and it starts to seem banal. But I think that's intimacy with the, the work. It, it dies on you because you know it too well, so you need to withdraw. But what's your kind of like, do you know like this is always what happens when I write a, yeah, a book? Yeah, 
Yeah, and it's my seventh novel and my thirteenth book or whatever. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so what is that? Yeah, you get more patient with yourself. Yeah, I mean, even you know, I was a little surprised, but I thought, geez, I, I, I'm having this big failure, and um, but I'm I'm more patient with myself. I feel either that I would fix it or I'd throw it away, and mm. which is what I did, and that was a big relief. <laughs> really. It's good to get rid of things that, you know, don't deserve to ever be seen. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone here wants yeah. to read that other book yeah. now as well, I think. But for me, reading Memories of the Future, I was thinking it must have been fun writing this book. Oh, I had so much fun. W yeah, was it fun? Oh, I laughed and laughed. <laughs> I, I really, and, and I think this is it, you know, that the, uh, the, the events in this book are invented, but it's an emotionally true book. And the comedy is genuine. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the heart of this book is a sexual assault. It's a serious business, mm. but the ability of, I think, the older narrator and the progress of the younger narrator to come to a place of, of distance, to be able to look at the self in ways that are genuinely ludicrous mm. uh, through uh, the apparatus, if you will, of reflective self-consciousness. Uh, you know, the, the ability to see the self as an other and also as a comic other. But not just the self. The whole, you know, the structures of reality. You know, there are these pictures partly of great men in this book, including there's Einstein. You probably can't see him. <laughs> I had fun drawing him. Um, and and, uh, and the current occupant of, of the White House is in there. Uh, um, Marcel Duchamp. And they're all made comic by the drawings, but they're also made comic by the, the narrative. So part of the joy, the play of the book, is bringing uh, certain characters down to human size. And one scene in particular, when I was thinking that must have been so much fun to write, and I'll try not to, to give too much of the plot away here, but it's a scene where an older man is talking about a certain topic, assuming that the young woman has absolutely nothing to say about this, and she just loses it and pours out all her knowledge about this topic in such a rage. Yes. What was it like? It's for you the to write problem that? of other minds. It's a problem, long problem in philosophy, but it's been treated uh, now really endlessly in uh, Anglo-American analytical philosophy. Um, so yeah, she blows a gasket. The guy <laughs> says to her, he's a philosophy professor. He's talking about the problem of other minds, and he says to her, "And I'm sure you have nothing to add." to this venerable philosophical discussion, my dear. And this is after the guy has thrown her against the wall and tried to rape her, and she's just had it. So she responds, and this happens to be a topic that she knows very well. She studied philosophy, and she ends up, as she says, <laughs> <laughs> 
pompously quoting Wittgenstein in the German. Once she's gotten out those words, she loses consciousness. <laughs> she faints. So, you know, she's horrified by her own aggression. That's the little moral of that story. But, you know, as the older narrator says at the end, I don't faint anymore. But what happened to you when you were writing that part? Was it like... I had a great time. I'm yeah. actually interested in the whole... Pro I'm interested in this, you know, the problem of the other minds. I think that this is, a, as she says, I give her my argument. It's a neo-Cartesian argument. It's out of a kind of solipsism that is part of Anglo-American uh, uh, philosophical tradition. I think it's silly. Uh, there's a whole lot in there about the fact, you know, which is a part of my arguments about things that we all begin inside the body of another person. This is completely ignored in most of the Western tradition or Aristotle who really does talk about birth and gestation and is interested in it. Of course, he divides things between form and matter and form is the masculine pr principle, the thing that gives oomph and matter is the dead, inert, feminine principle. So he didn't exactly come out of that a feminist, you know. And uh, uh, Plato was also in the symposium, for anyone who has looked at that recently, um, everybody's pregnant. But the higher birth of, is, of course, philosophical birth, the birth of ideas. And natural birth is just something we kind of need, you know, to get along. Anyway, um, so a lot of that is actually hiding in, in, in there. Mm. Um, but I realized that, you know, the fun part of it for me was simply that she tells him off. Yeah. And then she uh, discovers later when she wakes up from her faint that he was, that his jaw did indeed drop. Because I was thinking that one of my favorite parts about writing is that it gives me a possibility to get the last word. Like, <laughs> I'm usually yes. pretty slow, so someone could say something rude and maybe I will oh. not say anything. But then in like two weeks or maybe ten years, uh, I you will know, have you... worked up a rage and writing about it is, uh, makes me feel like I'm writing, rewriting history in my own well, favor. Well, I think this is part of, I think what you've just said, you know, the French, have, the French who have phrases for this kind of thing, l'esprit d'escalier, right? Mean? It means you're returning home from the dinner party and you're walking up the stairs and you realize what you should have said. You know, Dad, Bernard, I didn't say this. That would have really annihilated my, you know, interlocutor who needed some, uh, uh, you know, who needed the sharp, acute uh, sentence. Uh, so that is the thing, and it's absolutely true uh, that when you're writing, you're never just writing for yourself, right? There's always an imaginary other. Uh, the very act of writing is dialogical, but uh, at the same time, uh, there is a kind of um, grace 
of revisionism that's given to you inside the space of, of art. Mm. Yeah. Um, so one of the themes of the novel is, uh, and let me know if you don't agree here, the difficulties <laughs> of being a great woman uh, as opposed to being a great man. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about Well, you know, that? it's a kind of oxymoron, right? The idea of female genius is very complicated. Um, it's not something that the culture generally s celebrates. Uh, so one of the uh, characters in the book is a real person, Else von Freitag Loringhoven. Okay, does anyone <laughs> know who she is? Someone? Yeah. There we go. That's about. I I asked this. I've you know been around now for this book, and that's about the right number. So she was a Dada artist, and the story is told in the book of the fact that probably, in fact, I think the evidence is overwhelming. She was the one who sent in the urinal, uh, you know, in 1917. Uh, that then Duchamp took credit for much, much later. Uh, it, I think the authorship, you know, who's the author belongs to her. And uh, the art world is uh, uh, still uh, fighting over this. I've gotten a little, I've gotten, in, gotten involved in this now. <laughs> and I was just sent a uh, paper uh, that someone had written where I mentioned uh, uh, with some uh, condescension for writing a passionate article in The Guardian about Elsa von Freytag-Lorienhofen. The facts, as they say these days, are on our side, um, but the art world is hanging on to this very carefully. Nevertheless, the story is told inside the book, and we don't actually even need Elsa von Freytag-Loringhoven uh, to know that a great many works in both the arts and the sciences uh, that were done by women have been pushed under the rug, underestimated, and, you know, generally lost from the historical record. So the Baroness becomes a figure for the narrator of art, but also rage and aggression. She was a really, as she, she d describes herself as art aggressive, but she also was quite sexually aggressive. I mean, Duchamp was terrified of her. And she really wanted to seduce uh, uh, William Carlos Williams, who r ran for the hills. Uh, and, and, and so she was a kind of um, insurrectionist being. And so she becomes a vehicle for the narrator to uh, begin to find a way to articulate her anger after this assault. And she gets a knife from one of her friends a switchblade, which is an illegal weapon, I'm sure, in Sweden and uh, even in New York. Uh, and she names it the Baroness. She doesn't really know why, she, but she starts to carry that knife around. Uh, and it, it, it takes on a kind of, um, not just symbolic, but uh, important, I think, it's a sign or, or a symbol. And later she can put the knife away. 
because she finds, you know, the words to to articulate that, mm. and that becomes the book itself. The key. There are two images: the key and the knife, or the knife and the key. I actually wanted to ask you about this because something that I really, really enjoy with your books. Uh, is that it, I get a feeling that you get so interested in things, and that might sound a bit naive or something, but no. I find that so rare, like you have a genuine love for knowledge. And sometimes it feels like when I read your books that you have like a story that's about something, and then you come to think of this fact, and you're like, everyone needs to know this, and you just put it so, in there. I've been and thinking about this. You know, I, I've won this prize in Spain called the Asturias Prize. Okay, and when that? I get home, I have to write a little speech. And I'm thinking, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? And I thought, I think I want to say something about curiosity, mm. right? So oh, we know all mammals, and I, I mean, I have a feeling we're going to find out that lots of other animals are curious. I had a neuroscience a neuroscientist friend named Jak Panksepp, who's now dead. And he had a kind of brain system that he called the seeking system. You know, for people who have dogs, you take the dog in the car, you open up the car door, and the dog rushes out and starts sniffing everything in sight. Well, Jak always said, this is part of mammalian life. And he would argue that intellectual life is just a kind of continuation of that dog smell or, you know, mice and, and negotiating the territory around them. And I think this is, yes, it's probably in us. What's interesting is why are some people more curious than others? Yeah. Right? So... It, this may be that the habitus settles down so deeply that we stop questioning it, or that life becomes so conventionalized that you're kind of going through the motions without saying what every three-year-old, anyone who, here who has had a three-year-old goes, why? <laughs> why, Mom? Remember, it's like, well... You know, sometimes it's hard. My daughter once once asked me, why are there spaces between the words? <laughs> I remember how I thought about, or another beautiful thing she said when she was three. She was sitting in the bath. She looked at me and she said, Mom, when I grow up, will I still be Sophie? And I thought, I have to say yes. <laughs> you know, that seemed like the good parental thing. Like, yes, there is continuity. But this is, a, of course, a profound philosophical question. I mean, is my now 32-year-old daughter the little girl sitting in the bath? Well, yes and no, right? But I wanted to ask you what, uh, this might be a weirdly asked question, but I can't find any better way to ask it. Go for it. <laughs> I will go for it. <laughs> but what is your relationship to 
knowledge. How does it look? How does it uh, go about when you? Yeah. When you is it like? Does it start with a spark, or do you like? No. So it's like you, one question leads to another. Yeah. Right. So when I first started, for example, I got interested in the brain because I thought I don't know anything really deeply about the bio, really biology in general, and the brain seems to be the organ of the mind. Uh, it corresponded to a time when neuroscience re research was exploding. So I got myself, you know, Neuroscience 101. Um, I met some neuroscientists. I got myself a rubber brain that's still on my desk, which was finally way too crude to do me much good. It was only the, you know, rough uh, parts of the brain. And I just started to study. And, you know, the more you know, the more critical you become. So it became quite clear to me that neuroscience had made a number of assumptions, had failed to interrogate those assumptions. And once I knew enough, I was able to question them in, uh, you know, uh, conferences, at conferences and forums where I had been asked to speak. And you go from there. And some of those questions led to uh, new thoughts about, you know, uh, the history of science, especially since the 17th century. So I was thrown back into rereading the philosophy of the 17th century, uh, which led me to rethink the assumptions of the scientific revolution and then discover that contemporary philosophers of biology were also fascinated by these questions. You know, is nature a machine? Can we think of it as a kind of uh, mechanistic uh, process? Um, if you take everything apart and you go down to the smallest level, is that going to give you an answer? The little mechanism of of uh, biology, say? Or does something happen as things get more and more complex, you know, where the whole is more than those individual parts? These are kind of fundamental questions that people haven't solved. Or, of course, the mind-body problem, which is huge. And um, I think has you know has not been answered. So I spend a lot of time. Can you explain to us what is that? The, so the mind body problem is: are there two things, or one? Right? Is there something that that you know Rene Descartes said that the mind is a different substance from the body that is like a machine? Uh, that you can take apart and put together again. It's divisible. But the mind is consciousness, the thing, you know, I think, therefore I am. Well, not everyone agreed with Descartes. He had a huge influence on the history of science. But he spent the rest of his life trying to explain how those two things could fit together. And um, he landed on a little part of the brain called the pineal gland. And he said, it must come together there, in the imagination, you know, which was always the place between the mind and the body. Anyway, I, so I wrote a book about this. I think that's not in Swedish, but it's, 
insight in English in a huge book of essays called The Delusions of Certainty. Um, and, uh, and it was published both in German and French, and I think in Norwegian as a separate volume. Okay. It's fun. Yeah. And, and the other thing is that let's, I think what, what is often not understood is that for me, to, for me, both writing fiction and thinking through these problems, reading and reading and reading in different fields, it's a form of play, yeah. too. And, um, and that was another thing my friend, the neuroscientist, Jacques Panksepp, felt was a whole part of mammalian life was play. And little animals all play, especially young animals. And I guess some of us old animals don't want to stop. Right? Do you feel like, have you been like this all your life? Like when you learn a, a piece of knowledge that you really find interesting? I think so. I think so. I remember, you know, but I, I think many children, you think about that, like, isn't it weird how people are made? Like, isn't a finger really weird? Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Right? And, and, and why is it like this? Um, or what are feelings? I think many children have, have these thoughts. And I think for me it continued. And probably what's changed, which is also part of this novel, is that I am, I'm not frightened of my own authority in ways I was when I was younger. You know, that I would be weird and alienating and, uh, and punished. Because I, I also think it's very special that, that a lot of the time when you learn things, it's like you, okay, so I'm interested in, in uh, neuroscience, so you go pick up a, a neuroscience book. But what you're doing is some, when I, I read a book by you, it's like I have no idea what I will learn. It can be in, on a number of topics, and I find that so special and rare. Okay, I just, I got an honorary doctorate at the University of Nanterre just two days ago. Thank you. Anyway, and, um, but, and, and I, they asked me to give a 15-minute speech, like, two days before I left. They, they said, we want a copy of her speech, and I <laughs> said, what speech? Uh, so I sat down and I, I wrote this, but what I wrote about was specialization in the academy. I thought this was a good opportunity to get my views out, which is that, you know, people know more and more about less and less. And we can celebrate this in some important ways. I mean, as I said in the, the talk, no one wants to be wheeled into the operating room and find out that your surgeon is doing a bypass heart surgery for the first time, right? Expertise is something we can value and celebrate. What I find in my travels that, you know, include neurology, psychiatry, uh, neuroscience, psychology, you know, these kind of related fields, is that people become experts uh, without ever looking to the left or the right. Mm. 
not only that, they know nothing about the history of their own fields. So even I teach a class for uh, psychiatric residents at a medical school in New York. And, you know, they're mostly doctors in their 30s. They, um, you know, are very well trained. I haven't said that. I'm terribly fond of, of those classes. But they really do not know the history of medicine at all. Mm. It's not part of their training, which means that the categories of contemporary psychiatry can become rather sacrosanct, huh? that they're accepted as a kind of the way it is. And so I, I started that talk, and this is the important part of it. I gave a grand rounds lecture in neurology at Mass General. I think it was now a year and a half ago. It's you give a lecture, but then you get to visit research centers and stuff. There were some scientists doing work on uh, Alzheimer's and, uh, and dementia. And they gave me their presentations, and then they could ask me questions about my lecture. And this uh, man said to me, what, what I'm curious about is, why do you think someone like me, who every day is looking at fMRI images of the brain to try to figure out how we can you know, model what we don't know, uh, should read philosophy, history, uh, uh, literature? And I said, and it sort of, it just came to me, and this is the truth. I don't think you should, you know, do broad reading because you'll be more charming at cocktail parties, which you will. <laughs> it's because it will help you in your own work. This is the issue. It is not to create, you know, renaissance people everywhere you turn. It is that there are problems inside various fields, in the humanities and in the sciences, that could be solved with a broader outlook. And I don't think, you know, you have to change the epistemology. How do we know what we know? Well, there are different ways. The scientific method is one way. In the humanities, you use different premises, but by applying different epistemologies to the same problem, you can loosen up some of those dead ends. And it's happening, I think, now in, in certain fields that they're starting to look to the left and the right simply because there are walls that people can't get out of. And uh, the mind-body problem is, is is one thing, and it's created paradigm changes. You know, the underlying thinking has changed to embodied approaches to thinking about the brain in relation to other brains, or thinking about the uh, brain in relation to the environment, that you can't draw these old borders, that those old borders have led to uh, Mm, to a kind of s stoppage of thought. I have to uh, I, I have to just ask the audience something because uh, I realize there's one piece of knowledge I don't have. What time is it? How much time do we have? Oh, we're supposed to be stopped, you know. Oh, sorry. 
Nästan åtta, okej. Okay. Okej, okay, så so vi är nästan där. Okej. Okej. Vad saker ska jag göra? Det är bra att vi inte, you know, everyone was is so polite that we weren't, you know, a half an hour over. <laughs> and then you start to feel people jiggling and itching and everything. We actually have, I think we have some more time as well, but I'm, I'm going oh, okay. to I'm gonna try to pick no my, my questions me. very wisely. Uh, okay, so what should I pick? I'm sorry, but <laughs> I, got off on, I got off on epistemology here and that's no, but that be was dangerous. Awesome. Uh, this is what I wanted to ask you. Yes. Um, there's a part of the book, like uh, one of the, the narratives is, is referred to as SH. So that yes. was, could either be your own initials or it could be your name mentioned in Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes. Or in the English, it's standard hero <laughs> too. So there are these kind of revolving uh, 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 initials. I think actually I got this from science because they're always making these little things and it's it's kind of fun to play with it and there's also um, a kind of character called the mysterious limping gentleman or MLG uh, and so that's part of the fun of the book but Sherlock Holmes is 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 meaningful in the sense that what is Sherlock Holmes he it really is the embodiment of a, the kind of deductive method, right? And Conan Doyle always arranges it so all the signs are read correctly. Even when you look at the stories, the logic is fairly flawed. Mm. I mean, it, it, but there's something you know wonderful about one right answer. And I think Sherlock Holmes gives you that feeling of mastery. And there is of the intellect, you know, that he has no uh, feelings. He's never been in love with a woman. All that is made clear. So he is a kind of embodiment of a masculine fantasy of the intellect. Um, but he's also the guy who's always reading the signs, you know, the, the little, uh, the, the dirt you know, where the steps are yeah. going. And, and, and I, I loved Sherlock Holmes when I was a, a child. And I think the book is also very much about reading the signs. How do we read the signs? Uh, but the signs, unlike in Sherlock Holmes, do not have a single answer. And actually, I wanted to ask you about that Sherlock Holmes part in the fact that he is, of course, a detective. And for me, writing is sort of like detective work. You know, that Joan Didion quote that, like, yeah. I write to find out what I'm thinking. Yes. Is that what you're doing as well when you're I, writing? I think all, every, you know, every book is a kind of search. Um, I think uh, reading, and this book is very much about reading, uh, you know, reading the world, but also reading books and how books influence how we see the world uh, and how signs can be deeply mysterious and have multiple meanings. So I think I was playing on all of those reverberations. So one final thing that I really wanted to hear your thoughts about is... 
this. So there, there's, uh, of course, a different narrators in the book. And uh, some of the uh, SH and Minnesota, you're kind of playing with the idea that it could be parts of you, but yeah. it could also not yeah. be. And, and uh, for me, as a songwriter, that's something I think about a lot, because I could have written something that I myself is like, this is a great story. Or I could write something that people would really have an easy time thinking that this was about me. And right. especially as a songwriter, I think it's so much easier for people to connect to something that they think is about you. But it's also coming out of your body. Yeah, maybe it, they yeah, maybe see it is. you, right? This is, it's the performance is that, you know, the voice is not alienated on the page mm. when you're performing. Mm. You're giving people your instrument is coming right out of your body. So I think it's, I, my daughter is a singer-songwriter and she plays with a lot of characters in her songs. Mm. Um, but of course she's standing there performing yeah. and some of the songs are much closer to her autobiography than mm. others. But I think you're right that people will connect it to you. And I think we do this in the culture with novelists too. People were kept telling me that really happened, right? That <laughs> that that part is really true. Uh, there was a man who interviewed me in Paris, and he said, "Okay, the journal. That's really true." <laughs> so I, I made it up. He goes, "Really." He said, well, maybe that makes it better <laughs> that he believed it. So, you know, what's important, I think, in making novels is what I call emotional truth. T yeah. Tell us about that emotional well, truth. Well, so um, somewhere in my work, there's an essay called um, Why One Story and Not Another. And if you think about it, it's a very simple question. How on earth does a fiction writer know what's right and wrong? Right? How do you si decide that... You know, how, how did I decide that there were, at the center of the book there was going to be this attack? Um, I don't know. It's, it felt right. Mm. You know, it isn't an autobiographical event. It just felt that that was going to be the heart of this. And so feelings are always guiding the artist as I'm sure you know yeah. from your own work, that there's a feeling of rightness and wrongness. And that's why you get rid of a, a, a paragraph. You realize that it's wrong. And that can be a form of lying, which is strange. You know, how can a fiction writer lie? I think you can by betraying a kind of emotional underground of a particular work. And no one asked this question, you know? There's in, you know, when you take questions in literary audiences, someone will inevitably stand up and say, where do you get your ideas? And most writers roll their eyes and they say, how stupid can you get? Where do you get your ideas? It's a profound question. Where do these ideas come from? Well, I think they come from memory, but it is not, uh, you know, documentary truth memory. It's emotional memory. It's something that has meaning. And the story 
encapsulates that meaning in some way. So it's answering uh, uh, some profound uh, part of the inner geography of the writer. Um, it's always good to ask stupid questions. <laughs> because stupid questions, or what are regarded as stupid questions, are often the really good ones. The ones that go down. And uh, so where do you get your ideas is not a stupid question. Uh, before finishing up, I wanted to ask you what, uh, what are you interested in right now? Right now, I've been working, I, I, I gave a lecture to the uh, German Psychosomatic Society not that long ago. When was it? Not that long ago, last year. And I sat down to revise a book of essays so I could get these essays out. And it was an hour lecture, and I thought, you know, this is really interesting. I think I have to make it longer. Mm. So it's a little book about science, equality, and politics. Okay. Which I think probably I was eager to expand it because it has a kind of urgency for me now. You know, what are... Um, I'm writing quite a bit about, you know, the what we think of as the environmental influences on in, in medicine, that idea, and then also genetics, um, and how some of these models in science, I think, do have uh, damaging effects in the culture, and that they need to be rethought and reoriented as they uh, as they are. I mean, I'm hardly alone. I'm drawing on on other research and other thinkers. So I hope to finish that pretty quickly because I do have another novel kind of percolating or simmering in, 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 inside me. Do you want to tell us what that's about or do you want to not talk about it? I, have, I think I'm going to keep the title. It's called The Haunted Envelope. Oh, my God. <laughs> there was like a spontaneous ooh in the audience. That's gotta oh, be good. I, like, I don't think I'm gonna get rid of that title, but you know, if I do, my apologies. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for being here. Oh, you up. were great. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it.